Demir's Ambulances is one of the largest, most trusted ambulance design and manufacturers in the world, with a vision to build safe, reliable, and efficient emergency vehicles to assist paramedics in saving lives. Demir's manufactures Type 1, 2, and 3 emergency medical and fire ambulances that set the bar for quality, innovation, attention to detail, and rigorous testing. To find a Demir's Ambulance Dealer in your region, visit www.demirs-ambulances.com. Your partner on the road, every day, on every call. Is your fire department prepared to face challenges like the turbulent economy, recruiting and retention, and funding? Level up and get the training and strategies you need on the issues that matter most at WAVE 2023. Featuring ESO Training Academy on April 11th through the 14th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. ESO, a leading provider of fire RMS and EPCR software, brings together national industry leaders, quality training, and experienced fire and EMS professionals for a unique conference experience that will inspire you to drive change within your organization and prepare for 2023's challenges. For a limited time, our listeners can use the discount code FIRETRUCK to save $100 on a full four-day conference pass. Don't miss this opportunity to learn from some of the nation's top experts in emergency services. Visit ESOWave.com to register today. That's E-S-O-W-A-V-E.com. See you in Austin on April 11th through the 14th, 2023. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, empowered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Welcome to 5 After Midnight. It's a new show where we talk about the things the way you would around a sleep-deprived kitchen table. When you've run five or more calls after midnight, your brain feels half gone, and you and your crew have absolutely no filter. Just pure honesty. The goal of this series is to kick around the small things that really aren't so small and have a big impact in the way our firehouses function. My name is Stephanie. I'm genuinely not an expert at anything. I'm just here to ask the sometimes awkward questions. Enjoy. You've come too far. Don't let this slip away. Fade out like they said we would. Morning, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Five After Midnight. I am joined today by the illustrious new commander-in-chief of fire engineering, Chief David Rhodes. Um, Chief, I could read off your long list of accomplishments, uh, but I feel like that's better left to you. So if you would like to, just talk a little bit about your background, the journey essentially that, that led us to this point. Yeah, well, Diving first right of all, in. Uh, yeah, good morning, and thanks for... Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, you do a great job with it, and we certainly appreciate um, you and all our all our fire engineering radio podcasters. Uh, it's unbelievable how many downloads we get on these things. And uh, um, I guess in the spirit of 
the new age. It's it's it is the new talk radio, and it's awesome when you're working out. You can just download some audio and and have it on and and learn a little bit in the process, so you don't waste any time. But yeah, uh, it's been quite a journey. Um, I actually towards the 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 first summer I got out of high school, um, just trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, my my family had a history in in law enforcement on my mom's side, so I thought about going that route and decided against it. And I had uh, just a few years earlier lost my best friend in a car accident and uh, grew up in the Squad 51 emergency TV era. So I kind of had that little bit of a of a jolt to maybe go be a paramedic and and be on a, be on an ambulance. And uh, I was doing land surveying at the time, and the local fire chief in Conyers came in to get a job done, and I started talking to him about the fire department. And uh, they were one of the first in Georgia to require you to be a EMT as part of being a firefighter. And so I was kind of telling him what I was thinking. And he was like, well, if you'll come sign up to be a volunteer, we'll send you to EMT school hmm. and uh, we'll pay for it. And I'm like, that sounds good to me. So I signed up uh, that week and that that first weekend, I went by and one of the lieutenants at the time, Joel Yoder, said, we're, we're having a live burn on Saturday. Uh come over here to the cabinet. He handed me some gear, told me to meet him Saturday morning. And my first ever exposure to anything with the fire department was actually a, a live burn class. Talk In about getting class, you hooked. Oh, well, and I was my, first of all, I'm, I'm like 18 years old. My parents don't know anything about what I'm doing. My mom was, was pretty strict. And, uh, of course, I'm old enough to, to legally make the decisions, but I'm still living at home, so I'm still under that, you know, I got to be careful so I don't get the shoe thrown up against my head. And uh, he takes me down to this old farmhouse, and there's like, you know, 50 people for this state live burn. And uh, you know the routine. They put you on a team of like six people. You march in with the hose, put the pallet fire out, come back. Well, this house happened to be uh, an old farmhouse, like 12-foot ceilings, uh, heart pine paneling, tons of varnish and oil. And the very first time we go in, I am behind the, the person on the nozzle who is a volunteer in a rural county. The room actually flashes over uh, from, the, from all the pine sap, tar, and varnish. Luckily, the ceilings were tall, so uh, everybody hits the deck, and the guy on the nozzle falls on the nozzle and, and doesn't open it. <sighs> so the instructor is screaming at him, and he disappears, and fire drops to the ground. He starts rolling around with this guy. They're like, they're like two cats going at it, and finally opens the nozzle, and fire goes out you know, pretty quick. And I remember laying on the ground or laying on the floor with my head turned thinking I'm going to die. And this is my very first time ever. And if I don't die, my mom is going to kill me. And, uh, and, uh, as soon as the fire was, 
knocked back. He, he looked at me, the instructor looked at me and he goes, get this guy out of here. And he's screaming cause he's burnt. So I had no training, no anything. It's the first time I'd ever been in an air pack. Instinctively, I grabbed the guy by his SCBA straps. I get the two guys behind me to help. And we drag this guy out to the front porch and he's got second and third degree burns on his neck and back. And, uh, he gets loaded onto a stretcher and then the ambulance and, and off he goes. So then we have our little critique powwow and the instructors, you know, he's a little upset and a little, uh, lot going on with that, with the injury and everything in the class. So he's, a, he's taking his helmet off, he's taking his coat off and he starts taking something off of his head. And I said, sir, what is that you're taking off your head? And he goes, my helmet. And I'm like, no, that other thing. He said this. And I said, yes. He goes, oh, that's a Nomex hood. And I said, what's it for? And he said, well, it's to keep your, he goes, damn son. And my ears were just blasted. I had mm. blisters on the back of them and I didn't have a Nomex hood cause I was brand new and all I had was my ear flaps. And so, uh, uh, he critiques us and goes through the whole thing, tells me that I did a great job and all that. And I was like, screw EMT school. I'm going to be a fireman, <laughs> but I still went, but I still went and, uh, wasn't um, nearly I as exciting. Up, no, but I ended up getting hired like two months later, full time. And, uh, but after that first rush of adrenaline and that little, that whole little rescue, I'm like, okay, this is what I want to do for sure. And haven't stopped since. Well, I sort of stopped for a minute, but uh, I'm right back in now. Well, with an intro like that into the fire service, I uh, can't really blame you for jumping in with both feet. It was great. It was great. And I'm still friends with that lieutenant uh, to this day. He ended up retiring uh, as an operations chief. I actually left the department and, and went on to Atlanta. But uh still stay in touch with him. I taught classes with him for for 30 years uh, after that. So uh, I had some really good mentors along the way. So you came in, you got hooked, uh, you went on to be career in a, in a larger department in Georgia, Smoke Divers Program, which is absolutely an amazing elite program. You've done all these things on the fire suppression tactical side, and then you moved on to this, and this is a completely different journey for you just just speaking to you in the past the schedule is is grueling and gruesome and i don't think people realize how unglamorous being at the helm of, of fire engineering actually is it's a lot of grunt work from what it sounds like um and a lot of behind the scenes putting things together and and something that i think isn't as attractive to firefighters when they see the work that actually goes in it's a very different thing and what what made you want to step up and take on that role and go on that journey well that's kind of been my uh my pattern you know same as being a firefighter it's like you're not going to fires every single day and the public doesn't see the prep work that's going into what you have to do to be ready for it or um, even on the EMS side, you're, 
you are going to, to more EMS calls than you are fires, but you still don't see all the prep work that goes into being ready to do, being ready to act and being able to fulfill your obligation. Um, I got very lucky and went to the Georgia Smoke Diver Program uh, around 1986. And not only were the Conyers mentors that I had at the fire department part of the program, but I met up with a guy named Scott Millsap, who was just this larger than life um, role model mentor. He was about 10 years older than me. And I mean, as soon as I saw this guy and, and saw how he carried himself, how he operated, I was like, I want to be like that. And he was, he was in charge of the program. And if you can imagine, it's a combination of like a drill sergeant, a special ops operator and just this gargantuan fire you up full of passion kind of guy that but but also a person who you know is going to hold you responsible and uh and not going to let you slip you know he's going to he's going to be right there making sure you're doing everything right while coaching at the same time a true like tough love situation and uh after that class, I mean, it really set me on the right path of really understanding the whole picture of servant leadership and uh, the sacrifices that you have to make to actually accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. So taking on this wasn't really anything new and different because I, uh, he, he actually passed away 21 years ago. and. I took over the smoke diver program uh, from him. And so that was sort of like training, training step number one for, uh, for this role is, is going in after somebody with that big of a personality and in a, in a very large type A personality group that you're, that you're responsible for and, and guiding and coaching. And, uh, we were able to take the smoke diver program and, and take it nationwide, make some changes and uh, um, offer opportunities for out of state people to come in. But that whole process, nobody gets paid for, for smoke divers uh, from, from myself all the way down to the, to the newest instructor. You come to the class, you, you graduate, and you're invited back to be an instructor. But part of that is it's a sacrifice on you to come back and be an instructor. Hmm. Um, and you're giving back to the program. So Scott Millsap, uh, back in the nineties, asked me to be a hands-on instructor with a company he had, which ended up teaching at FDIC. And that was probably 95, 96. And uh, that was my first ever exposure to FDIC. Other than I think a few years before, I'd ridden up with a couple of guys in Cincinnati and just walked the walked the floor to see the see the equipment and and things like that, but none of the training. So I'm teaching hot with uh, Scott Millsap and and a lot of guys from his company, which was uh, ESE Training Associates. And that led me to meet Bill Manning, who was the editor. Um, and then in 98, 99, 
Atlanta had the dramatic mill fire with the helicopter rescue of the crane operator. I happened to be union president in Atlanta at the time. And uh, a fellow by the name of Matt Mosley, who actually hung from the rope of the helicopter to make the rescue. And I were asked to do the keynote at FDIC in 2000. And also, I was asked to write an article about the incident. And so that was my first time being truly involved in the magazine and uh, on stage as, as a speaker at FDIC. And that worked into working uh, in the HOT program, doing logistics and uh, moving out of the instructor role. And again, sacrifice. I didn't get to teach and I had to work all year to make the class happen. But our motto was we're providing what the instructors need so that they can can do the training. Uh, it wasn't glamorous. I spent about 10 days in a warehouse in Indy, um, staying dirty and, and coordinating guys that are driving trucks and delivering supplies right down to the lunches that happened. But uh, it, it led to some incredible relationships with a lot of the instructors. I was able to continue the writing. And then after Bill Manning left, Bobby came along and really enhanced what we did by providing us some more resources that we needed. And uh, we just had an unbelievable partnership over the 18 years that he was there. He, uh, he first mentioned to me about three or four years ago, um, I had been doing a column in fire rescue called the Hump Day SOS that had gotten a fair amount of, uh, fair amount of attention in the fire service. And uh, he liked it. He liked the style of writing and he, he said, are you interested at all in possibly becoming the editor at some point? And I was like, man, I don't, I don't know. That's really not, you know, I don't even know what that entails. And uh, most people are thinking, you know, you're, you're looking at making sure all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed and you're proofreading um, things. And I'm like, I'm not really that great at that. I have to have somebody, you know, check my stuff and so he goes no 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 he goes no you control the content like you control the the tone and you what guide the voice right you become become the 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 voice and the the conscience if you will of of the brand and the, and the magazine and uh he had seen what we did at smoke divers he had heard me teach uh and of course seen my articles and uh you know, again, sort of like Scott Millsap, he took me under his under his wing there and started challenging me on a lot of stuff and uh, just hours and hours and hours of phone calls. And I kept telling him he was never going to leave because he, he couldn't. I knew that the magazine was part of the reason that he was staying alive with all his medical issues. Is It was his purpose and his passion. And it was great therapy for him. And uh, he was like, no, I'm ready to slow down and do, I want to do my car shows. He had a 65 Mustang, uh, which that didn't hurt me either. I was a Mustang guy. <laughs> had a 69, passed back in high school. And uh, so we had that in common too. But he was, he was like, yeah, I really want you to do this. 
but we'll take it slow and we'll do like a two-year transition. And uh, he said, we'll just wait till you retire and, and then we'll make it happen. So patiently, we, we did. It was a couple more years and I retired from Atlanta after 30 years. And uh, August of last year, which was about a year, a little over a year after I retired, he brought me on full time in a in a support role to him. Um, we joked and said it was editor and training role. The official title was like content strategist or something very corporate. And so I was recruiting people to write and reviewing stuff that that people submitted, and uh, was looking forward to seeing the behind the scenes of like the opening ceremonies and and all of that. Uh, this year, but because I, ha I haven't seen the opening ceremony since I gave the keynote because I've been out in the warehouse grinding. So uh, um, I was looking forward to kind of shadowing him and seeing how things were going to go. But uh, life throws you curveballs. Um, he uh, he decided to to uh, check out on us and uh, but he had set, you know, he had set the process in place, and uh, I can't say enough about the team that's that's at Fire Engineering and FDIC. Um, Diane Rothschild is the is the glue that has been there, um, you know, 35, 36 years, I think, and just unbelievable work ethic and and you brought it up, the amount of work that goes in to the production of the websites, the archives, the online content on social media, mm. the conference itself, um, and the magazines, is just unbelievable what gets accomplished with such a small staff. And it, uh, it takes total uh, cooperation and collaboration across a huge platform of of salespeople, of tech folks that that are doing websites, um, and everybody has to communicate almost daily to make sure that the that the thing keeps rolling. And just like a fire department, it's like the stories in the news don't stop, so it, it's twenty four seven um, for for a lot of the folks. Excuse me. 24/7 for a lot of the folks, and uh, um, it it is a grind, but it's it's a good grind because you know you're doing good work, and you're getting good information out, and uh, you know it's satisfying when you when you get a letter or you get an email or a message that's like, hey, I read this article, and we implemented this in our department, and we're changing this, and uh, you know it's very re rewarding. But most people only see the pageantry of FDIC, or they think, you know, they read the editorial in the magazine, think that's it. But it is. Uh, it's a lot of moving parts. It's a grind. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's 40, 50 emails a day. It's 20 phone calls a day. It's, it's a lot. And, uh, but, um, it's somewhat addictive, I guess. It's like anything else. It's like uh, if you see the positive impact you're having, that it, it sort of feeds the feeds the fire to to say. 
but uh, I enjoy I enjoy writing. I still enjoy writing. I really enjoy writing the editorials. And uh, uh, one of the things that I really like is is I like to see somebody who hasn't written before submit an article, and the subject will just be phenomenal, and the writing will just be absolutely horrid. And <laughs> is that is that aimed, know, is that aimed at me? No, no. I, actually, I don't know that I've, that I've read any of your stuff yet, but I will call that. I'll call that person up, and I'll be like, "Hey, uh, I got your article, and and man, I love you're talking about this and that. Um, we got to structure it a little better so it, it it flows, and and you can read it, you know, without it jumping around everywhere. I'll help you get that done. Think about this and think about that." And this, this process could be three or four months of back and forth with some ideas. And I don't have time to rewrite an article for somebody, but I have to take that time to sort of coach them through the process and then teaching them a new skill. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a lot of people are good communicators, like on the drill yard. I mean, they're phenomenal, but they can't put it into an article form easily. So we help them through that process, and then and then once we get the content and the flow down, of course I turn it over, you know, to Diane and to to her team. She's got several folks that help her with the copy edit part. And they copy edit and lay it out, and I get it back and I look at it, and I'm just like, man, this has gone from three or four colors on a on a piece of cardboard with a blank canvas to now this beautiful piece of artwork that is going to go in the magazine. And then, you know, you call up that author and you're like, Hey, we're running your article in whatever month. And they're like excited. And then it comes out and then they're just like, you know, taking pictures of it and posting it. You know, my first article is, it's, it's a, an amazing process to see, the the passion that you end up igniting in a lot of people um just to be able to share their views and and get something something published in a magazine with the history like fire engineering you know it's a it's a pretty neat experience to to go through with with people on a monthly basis well and mentoring them in that way they can they can take it and they can go farther instead of just fixing it for them or having an editor working even more on it than the author you've you've taught them to help expand their view and the view of those around them through their writing they can do it more often which is it's it's one of the amazing things about about fire engineering um it's funny you talk about how amazing the staff is i will send poor pete an email and and be thinking it's you know it's saturday night he'll respond monday morning and I will get a response back um, and just the respect in the response and the caring and professionalism just shocked me from day one. I've been doing this Absolutely. working with fire engineering for about a year now. And there's, you know, I've, I've felt there've been days where I know I'm annoying with just, it should have all been in one email, but I, I had a couple afterthoughts and just the grace and patience that has always been shown to me by the staff has always left me surprised. I'm still waiting for the day when I'm going to get yelled at and it hasn't happened yet. So right. uh, that's such a testament to the staff. One thing. Yeah, and I think, oh, go, ahead. Go, ahead. No, go ahead. 
I think that that's uh, the important piece is that sometimes you, you can get caught up in the, I mean, there, there is a, a certain amount of notoriety, of course, just that comes with the position of being editor. Um, you know, like my, my Facebook, uh, follower list has gone up by a thousand in the last week, you know, just because you have the title and you have a little more exposure or whatever. And, and it, it would be easy to get caught up in all the part of that. But one of the things that I want to really stay focused on is that my job really is to set the compass of, of what we want to publish, who we want to publish, the type of work and the type of message we we want to put out, and it's a it's a huge responsibility. It's not that you just are throwing some content out there to fill up fill up a magazine. Every single word matters to the fire service and the direction of the fire service, and we have the opportunity to have influence on that by providing the platform to the right people. And that's my responsibility is finding the right people to provide the platform to not just having the platform for me to get a message out, but for opening up the doors to the fire service, to the people who are truly at the grassroots level, trying to make a difference. Um, whether it's in their own organizations or, or through national groups, but, um, I've always had a soft spot for the underdog and uh, a, a little bit of disdain for for deep, deep, deep bureaucratic establishment. And so <laughs> I like having that opportunity to do that dance, but do it in a responsible way. It's, it's interesting when Chief Fulton, when Bobby passed, obviously a loss that we can't measure and Something he said to me one day when I was a little a little worried I was pushing the envelope when I was writing um the series on medical marijuana in the fire service and I, I was nervous about that going forward and wondering if he was gonna put the axe on it and he said no and I, I said thank you for for allowing the, the things I write and say on the podcast and writing. And he said the fire service needs more voices, not fewer voices. And when right. you took over as, as editor-in-chief, I was I was nervous. I didn't know you. I had never met you. And, and we had a phone call to kind of introduce ourselves to each other. And at the end, you said something. You said, this is about having a platform to give different pers perspectives and different voices to people. And it was verbatim of what Bobby said in your own words. And I hung up from that phone call thinking, man, awesome things are going to happen for fire engineering. Um, I, I think everyone was obviously nervous because Bobby was so good at what he did. Yeah. And here you and were. And he had a platform for a long time. So that's yeah. you know, but crazy he, too. Here you were without having heard him say that you were echoing the same sentiment, which was amazing to hear. And I think in the fire service right now, we are in, I've been in the fire service for 20 years now, and I, I feel like I'm seeing something that I've, I've never seen before. We're just on this 
cusp of change, more voices, different avenues for people to have a voice, a, a different generation is coming in and they're demanding to know more of a why than a telling them what to do. It's just such a changing landscape. And I want to I want to know what it is. What, what's your goal? What is it that you want to accomplish during this tenure as editor in chief? Well, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that we're right on the edge. We're coming out of we're coming out of a a decade or more of what I call the risk averse mentality to where um, it was just uh, it was just driven to everybody that there was there was nothing worth risking your life for. Um, and that your, your personal safety and your, your, uh, being had to come before everything else, uh, that you did in any decision. Mm-hmm. And, in, and it, I don't really think that it was intended to take on the life that it did, but I think, as with anything, the way it was interpreted in certain uh, leadership roles, that it was uh, in some places, like in the extreme, was like, okay, we will not go inside and fight a fire anymore. It was a we'll pendulum fight a fire from the outside. It was a pendulum yeah. swing that went way too far. Yeah, and if you look at it, it was across society as a whole too, because this happened in law enforcement with the school shootings. Um, you know, it was it was stay outside, establish command, gather the resources, build a plan, build an IEP, and and then execute that IEP once all the once everybody has their correct vest on and their correct title and 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 we you know rehearsed and and then that's come full circle to say, you know what? Get your ass in there if you're the only cop and start shooting at the bad guy. He's a coward and 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 he'll he'll drop his weapon and run or maybe you'll shoot him or whatever. So now I see the fire service is moving back to understanding that we got to put some common sense back in. Yes, we need policies and we need training and we need rules, but the data is showing us that if we can make a rescue in a fire within the first six minutes of the first unit's arrival, that patient has like a 78, 79% chance of survival. And so what we can't do is get caught so much, caught up in our procedure that we're paralyzed by the procedure. We can't use common sense. Um, There's videos of, of firefighters like kneeling at a window with a victim like, waiting at the window for help and the firefighters making sure that their coats buttoned and their gloves are on and their hoods on and their helmets on and they're hooking up on air. Meanwhile, a civilian in shorts, no shoes and no shirt walks up and grabs the victim out of the window. And it's like, it's happened. Yeah. And and how many police officers have made rescues uh, while the fire department is on scene doing their 360 and their, you know, water supply, and they're doing all the checkbox items that they've been trained to be. 
but we we sort of went through that phase where we were training everybody to be robots to follow procedures so precise but we we forgot to teach them how to use common sense and make decisions and uh and i'm excited that i see that that is on a grassroots level being pushed back up through the organizations and that's exciting to me so that will definitely be something that I am uh, um, going to be a huge proponent of is is getting this data on search. Um, I just compared it the other day to we have to stop thinking of search as one of those items that are on our checklist. And we have to act like when we pull up to a house fire, This we have to take the same actions we would if we found a kid face down in a pool that's that's the same mentality if if you jumped in the pool you're going to jump in the pool and grab that kid and pull them out and start rendering aid that's their only chance of survival same in a fire we have to get in and we have to search and we have to get that primary search knocked out in the first five to six minutes and give these victims uh, the best chance and then on top of that we've got to have the right equipment we need sino kits we need policies that that put those in place and the resources to have those. And we can truly make a difference with with aggressive uh, search and fire attack. And, and I'm glad to see we're abandoning this, you know, let's wait until we got all these resources in place and we got a perfect plan and, and, and everybody's in the right position and then we'll execute and uh, patent. General Patton was one of my favorite uh, old generals to study, and uh, he has he had a saying that was like a pretty good plan implemented right now with speed and vigor and passion is much better than a perfect plan implemented three weeks from now. Mm-hmm. And and that's true in all aspects of rescue. Um, one of the things I remember in in 1985 studying my basic firefighter in the rescue chapter was that time is against the victim. And that was in both the fire material and in the EMS material. Um, that if you had a, a extrication, you were doing, um, you know, the, the golden hour till you got them to the hospital was, was a deal. So that meant that you had to extricate them, get them in, uh, the transport unit and get them to the hospital within that hour. And then uh, I think we're going to see something very similar to that with fire victims is going to be like the first six minutes. You know, that's going to be a campaign I'm going to push is like we have to focus on what we do in those first six minutes to increase the survivability of those those victims. And the data showing us the American Fire Service and this again, this is not official government reported data this is grassroots guys on their own doing google searches for the word rescue and pulling data and then contacting those fire departments the american fire service is rescuing about eight people a day that are that are surviving and and if if we're getting that off of a grassroots effort you can imagine it's probably double that uh if we were actually able to capture the data. So I think that's some exciting times is that we're finally 
moving away from the total risk averse and getting back to common sense. And that by no means is an endorsement of being reckless or, or doing things that are, uh, the fire chiefs love to use the term cowboyish. Um, it just means that we are truly doing real risk management. And if we're going to equip our firefighters with $10,000 worth of gear, uh, a $6,000 radio, a $6,000 thermal imaging camera, let's allow them to use it uh, to, to, to save somebody and don't bog them down in, in bureaucratic uh, checklists and, and, and policies that eliminate their ability to make common sense decisions. It's funny you brought all that up because recently I was involved in, in training at work and I heard someone say, and when you see fire, you know, even if the officer is doing their lap, open up the nozzle, you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to hit the fire. And I thought, allowed? <laughs> when were we? And I, I turned to the gent next to me who had, he came in the class behind me. I said, when, when were we ever not allowed to not hit fire when we saw it. And it was such a strange realization that there had been discussions of that um, that I, I guess I hadn't paid attention to. And I think with this new incoming generation of why, I think if we, we get rid of that, that toxic culture of, of too much self-protection and we return to, listen, we're, we're here to risk a lot, save a lot, right? Save a life. If we're returning to that and we couple that with this generation that wants to know why, I think we're actually going to raise an amazing fire service that we, we haven't seen in years. Because if, if we're teaching them that why, they're going to learn it better. And they're going to then be able to take it a step that those we didn't teach why couldn't have taken because they, they didn't understand the fine minutia of that. And I think it's going to be so exciting to see fire engineering through articles and podcasts and training jump on on feeding that that why and that quest for knowledge that this new generation yeah, and has. It, and the scary part is the programs like Smoke Divers, that the why is the that's the crux of the whole program. That's the that's the meat and potatoes of of learning what you're supposed to learn while you're there. Unfortunately, since the why went away for a lot of areas in the, in the fire service, and we, and we saw this in our mission statements back probably early nineties, you know, pretty much every fire department had the same mission statement for years to save lives and property. That was it. And then we go into these corporate jargon, mission statements that like you can't even pronounce the words and they're just just a bunch of corporate buzzwords strung together uh probably because some consultant came through and, and helped you craft your mission statement to be in line with your stakeholders and mm. all these you know uh buzzwords that they throw out industry leaders and uh and unfortunately, um, the leadership in the fire service suffered because the people who didn't really get drilled into them, the why, promoted and became in charge. 
And so they didn't know the why either. And so it's very easy to just become robotic and put policy out and dictate that you're going to checklist everything that they're going to do for, for quote, safety reasons. And a lot of these people hang their hat on the word safety. And they'll, they'll say safety this and safety first and this safety and all. But the reality is the culture that they created and the policies that they put in actually made things less safe. It looked great on paper, but it actually made things less safe. And not only did it make things less safe, it made our chance of successful rescue uh, unlikely because of the things that, that were that were happening. So again, I don't think that it was a coordinated strategy to make that happen. I think it was just a natural process that once something got a little steam, it it sort of took on a life of its own and uh, we just became so uh, risk averse that it was it was nauseating uh, and, th and there was there was no middle ground. It was either you were a reckless non-policy following cowboy renegade or or you were a stand outside and, and do nothing uh, firefighter. And most everybody lives in the middle. Uh, most people aren't wanting to hurt themselves on the fire for the most part. They, they like themselves <laughs> and, and they risk based off of their training and their knowledge and their understanding of building construction and their equipment. And when you take that away from them, it's like we lose our status in, in the trust of society. If we, if we take the ability for our people to make decisions on the scene away from them, then anybody can do the job, right? You just need a, you just need somebody to get the fire truck there and any city worker could hold a hose and protect exposures. Amen. You know? So I always hated the uh the sticker on fire trucks, everybody goes home because it's we hope everybody goes home, but at the end of the day, it's an inherently dangerous job and we've tried to to take that concept out of it and unfortunately you can't. Um, so it'll be, it'll be oh, exciting to see. hundred percent agree with that. I always hated that. And again, I don't think that it was, it was not ill intended. No, but everything has unintended consequences. And what happened with slogans like that is in the event that something does happen that is beyond the control of, of anyone. And, you know, we go into, we can go into a situation. It can look like a routine one, two room house fire. And we don't know that the homeowner stored three propane cylinders in the kitchen and a propane cylinder lights off and blows up and, and, we unfortunately experience a line of duty death in our, our profession. By pushing the campaigns like that,
when something totally unpreventable happens and there's a stigma put on the department that they did something wrong, that they didn't do enough training or they didn't have enough uh, policies in place so they shouldn't have been in there or, you know, what, whatever. And that ruins lives uh, and, and causes a lot of emotional distress and harm. And so you can't set unrealistic expectations like that. Uh, there is always an unintended consequences. So you really, that old saying words matter is uh, it's been around a long time and, and, and they do. Amen. Well, Chief, thank you so much for having this conversation with me and getting to introduce yourself to people who might not know all the fantastic work that you've done before stepping into this role. I'm so excited to see where fire engineering heads in the next 10 years under under your leadership and, and what it can accomplish and thoughts and ideas like what we just talked about that how how we can change culture through allowing all these the new generation of voices and, and the old generation as well and where we're going to take the fire service it's going to be exciting to see so thank you for having this conversation with me well, thanks for uh thanks for having me on your show and keep up the great work yes sir yeah.